Hello and thank you for listening to episode 167 of 60 Minutes with... I'm Dave. And I'm Tom. And this is another of our remastered interview shows. And this one, can you believe this, mate, when I tell you the date we originally released this, was August 2013. Good God. (laughs) Six years almost. (laughs) Wow. Doesn't time go quick? Um, Yeah. Yeah, man. God. But we were just talking off air as well. I mean, we just said time goes quick, but (laughs) neither of us could remember anything about the interview, could we? Yeah, like I was saying, I'm sat exactly where I am now, doing the interview, but like I'm listening to it, and I'm just like, I can't remember this. <laughs> and <laughs> a it's little a good... nervous voice chips in with a couple of questions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we were both in our. Oh, I say questions. Um, yeah, sort of get into it a little bit. It was, it was more just brief prompts from both of us, wasn't it? He's such a talker. Oh God, we yeah. We didn't really need to say anything. It is. Question him much. And we haven't even said who it is, I've just thought. <laughs> we Although people will know from the bloody title of the episode. Read the title, guys. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Don't leave all the work to us. Yeah. <laughs> Shabadoo, of course. Uh, Adolfo Quinones, better known as Shabadoo. Uh, because we got into... The... Didn't you pick Breaking as one of the movies, or was it the second one? Was it Electric Boogaloo? It was one of the two. I'd probably think if it was, it would have been the first one if I was going to, but yeah. like... Like I, I was. I'm just looking over them now. I'm fans of these films because they just, uh, they are the ultimate in eighties. Just oh yeah, you need a film that personifies eighties, and it's the breaking films, not just because of the colours and what they're wearing. It's just the craze as well. And I was just like, we've. I can't remember the circumstances, but I'm just like, we've got to try and get one or both of these guys, Shabadoo and um, <coughs> Boogaloo Shrimp, <laughs> on the show. Um, and yeah, Shabadoo was first, wasn't he? He was, yeah, because we, we got both of them, for people that don't know. We, we ended up with Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp. Yeah, we did. <laughs> that's another that's story for another day. It is, yeah. That's a, a good story to accompany that remastered yeah, interview. That, yeah, that will, be, that will be one we're definitely going to do. Um, but yeah, like you said, mate, it's, we didn't really have to say much at all. He was just, he's such a great talker and oh, obviously yeah, so many number. great stories, you know. We just yeah, sat back and listened. Like, a real like rags to riches tale, you know, from his time in Chicago. Then his mum deciding to like, right, we're 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 getting out of here and to stay away from all the gangs and stuff. And then the Soul Train, and then into the films and oh, everything. Yeah. yeah, just yeah, really. And you know, like as a member of prompts, it's just like literally as one I was listening to, it's just like. So then you did breaking and breaking too, and then he was off. Absolutely, <laughs> <And> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were all really questions. They were just like, now this bit. Yeah, and then we sit back for ten minutes, and he's just he just, just enjoy. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's so entertaining, and one of my favourite bits listening to it is when he goes through the names of like his gang, the Locking Gang, and the people. Yeah. Oh, there is some incredible names. It was just like I had a huge smile on my face listening to all of these names. I think we should have our own Locking names at some point, Tom. Yeah, big T, vanilla T. <laughs> I might already have mine. <laughs> already thought it. Already thought it through. Uh, and then, of course, the people he's worked with, as everybody's going to hear, you know, for, with the whole Madonna tour as well after, oh my after God, breaking yeah. and all of that and the stories he comes out with that. I was really interested as well because he does mention, like I said, this came out in August 2013. And it was, I think he said it was due for summer release of the following year, 2014, yeah. the third breaking movie, which unfortunately didn't happen. Yeah, and it was they were going to film it in Ireland, weren't they? 
Yeah, because we were and all set was, to go. Yeah, we were going to go over and try and get into the film. Like, we could be like Jean-Claude Van Damme in original Breaker. <laughs> just in skin-tight like we're grinding in the background. Oh my, that's probably why the investors threw the money out. They heard that episode. The BBFC would just be like, no, we're not releasing that as an 18. <laughs> yeah, we could have scuppered, what was it, Breaking Rising, wasn't it? it was going yeah, to be something like, or Uprising, something Upri- like that. Yeah. But yeah, brilliant, brilliant guest. Loads of really good stories. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if well, if you did hear it back in 2013, I think you're in for a treat re-listening to it. And then, of course, anybody that hasn't listened to it, mate, they're just in for even more of a treat. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. really good, really good show. Really proud and happy with this one. Yeah, it's a cracking one. Uh, shall we sit back again and let everybody listen to it then? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. And tonight we are excited again because we're going to chat to actor, dancer, choreographer, director, producer, Adolfo Shabadoo Canones. Hello, Shabadoo. Hey, how are you? Hey, we're good. How are you? Excellent. Things could be better. Oh, good to hear. Good to hear. Um, well, first of all, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, giving us some of your time. It, my, my pleasure. Oh, right. Let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, you were born and raised in Chicago, and am I right in saying that you lived in the Cabrini Green area? Yes, that's correct. In my childhood, I uh, I lived in the Cabrini Greens, uh, exactly the 626 Larrabee. Uh, it was considered the White Projects. Wow. And what was it like living there? It must have been kind of tough. It was like it was like setting up camp on the Gaza Strip. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and it, I'm all right again in saying I've been reading quite a bit about you today. Um, you were arrested for dancing. Yeah. Um, in, my, in my again in my early teens, there was an, there was an area of Chicago called Old Town, and during that time was the whole hippie sort of revolution going on in the late '60s. And I don't know, I, I just took it upon myself to climb into a storefront window there and just started dancing and doing the robot uh, and other th- types of dancing there. And, and then I got arrested for it. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could have I said I had a captive audience, but that wouldn't be true. <laughs> How did you move then? What made you move from Chicago over to L.A.? Well, it was it was at my mother's. Thank God, she my mother's vision. She she knew the guy the gang violence I was involved in, and uh, and it was quickly and, and Chicago for for the most part is still uh, involved in the, the gang violence there has it by the throat. But she she knew that and and just really mixing in with the bad sorts. And she just said, you know. We need a new location. We need to start over. And she literally loomed up the truck and moved to Beverly Hills, so to speak. And uh, we loaded in a 64 Oldsmobile and moved to Placentia, California. And, you know, I, I have to say this. When I was leaving Chicago, it was I remember looking out the rearview, uh, the rearview window there, and it, it, it just looked gray, right? And... Yeah as Chicago did to me. And entering California Placentia, it was like that Wizard of Oz moment, you know, when the when the film turned from black and white to color. 
I was just like, what is this? You know, and people, you know, uh, you know, I was used to, you know, I wasn't used to lawns having real grass. We had glass and, and, and rocks in our uh, grass beds. And I remember my mom saying to, to, to us, she said, you're going to thank me one day. Your mother took your feet off the glass and put them on grass. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was quite an experience. Oh yeah, it sounds it. It must have been such a, a well, a, a huge culture shock, even going from there. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, in Chicago, we we dress according to the seasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's pretty much true in the UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have your summer clothes, you have your spring clothes, and your fall clothes, your winter clothes. And you know, again, when I left, it was it was during the fall air time, and so. Everybody was dressing in muted colors, a lot of browns and blues and blacks and grays and that kind of stuff. And um, when I get to California, people were wearing orange pants and lime green shirts and and and, and speaking in a manner that we're, we, I wasn't really accustomed to. So, yeah, it was a bit of a of a shock. Mm-hmm. We just thought, wow, everybody dressed like. Like they're in a Crayola box. <laughs> so what happened then? You get to LA. What's the story then that takes you through to, let's go into like when you were in the Soul Train. Okay. Uh, the journey there was, I was, so we moved in with my cousin, Kenneth Brown, and he was a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps. And he was stationed at El Toro Base in Orange County, and I don't think it's open any longer. Anyway, we started living with him, and so uh, at the time, I, I didn't know if I really wanted to continue school, so I was pretty much a dropout at that point, and r- really no direction in my life, uh, although dancing was always something important to me and my little sister, Fawn, which I'll tell you about later, but um, I started cleaning uh, I started delivering newspapers. He had a, a paper route. He would make extra money delivering paper. Uh, we would drive around the neighborhood and just chuck the newspapers to the to the <laughs> subscribers, right? Chuck it onto their lawns and things. And and then he would also have he had a maintenance business, and part of the maintenance business was cleaning up drive-ins. And I remember just working in the drive-in, and it was just a hot hot summer day and picking up all that garbage and the heat just kind of coming off the asphalt. Mm-hmm. And I just felt defeated. I looked up to I, I looked up to God and I just said, God, is this what I'm doing? Is this what I'm here to do? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a garbage man. <laughs> and, and I kind of slumped down on, you know, and leaned against this post where they hold the speakers that you put in your car. And uh, and I just kind of cried there, just thinking my life was was pretty much set out for mm-hmm. me. Um, it, not too long after that, my sister she snuck into my room and she said, "Hey, there's a contest at Fullerton College. The Black Student Union is holding the BSU." and is a contest you and I should get in it. You know, me and my sister, we're really good dancers. We, we known all around Chicago for dancing. And so I was like, how are we going to get there? 
So she had lifted my mom's keys to the Oldsmobile. <laughs> and, I did, and I didn't know how to drive. <laughs> Not really. I kind of did. I kind of knew how to drive from watching TV. So there you go. So I, um, we get into this Oldsmobile, and we literally drove some 10, 15 miles away, um, like going like five miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, it took us a really long time to get there. And we get to the contest, and my sister and I took second place, and this gentleman named Campbellock Jr., I think his dance partner was named Lynn, um, they took first. And he was doing this really outrageous dance. And he looked pretty wild. Uh, he was very, very dark black man, probably about three shades darker than a black Crayola. And uh, wearing a red hat that was safety pinned up. If you can imagine being the, the bill of it being folded back and safety pinned with this huge gold safety pin on the front. <laughs> he had a cutoff shirt ab muscles and was wearing these baggy checkered pants and shoes I, I later learned were called Scooby-Doo shoes. <laughs> and um, anyway, he's diving through this girl's legs. He's doing stuff that I've never seen before in, in, with dancing. I'm just used to straight dancing. This guy's doing some other kind of stuff, you know. And in his, he ends his solo by throwing this 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 napkin that he has mopped this sweat off his forehead and balled it up and threw it in the air, like 10, 15 feet in the air and, and catches it in that red hat, spins, <laughs> it, spins the hat and puts it on. And I thought, what the hell is this? <laughs> anyway, you know, so afterwards, you know, I approached him. I was like, hey, you know, you know, what is it? What was that you were doing? He, said, ah, he had asthma. So I call it locking. It's called locking. And I was like, locking? You know, again, you know, calling dances after locking. It was like, it was like he said the dance was called the chair. <laughs> now, you know, and, you know, I was like, uh, he's doing a dance called a lock. Hmm. Really, you got to realize I grew up, again, in Chicago, and the popular dances were named after animals and things. So we would do the funky chicken or we do the penguin or you do the alligator <laughs> or you do the horse or the pony, you know, these are, uh, do the duck, you know, you do the duck and you bend over and shake a tail feather or whatever. <laughs> but so these guys, again, we were, you know, dances were named after, pretty much named after animals and things. But I didn't know them to be named after inanimate objects like that, you know, mm -hmm. like a lock. So I was like, a lock? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, you and your sister, you're really good dancers. I said, oh, thank you, you know. And we were. We, we took second, you know, even so. And he says, uh, I said, could you teach me how to do that, that lock? And he said, yeah. And so he made a deal with me that he would teach me, but I would have to feed him. And I, and I thought, you know, that's a pretty good deal, you know. Yeah. And to get dance class and just have to feed him, but I didn't know he ate like a horse. <laughs> so it, it turned out, as it turned out, it was really a good deal. And then it came to turn out, it came, I came to find out that he really wasn't interested in teaching me. He really was eyeing my beautiful sister. <laughs> so, 
So that's a, that was a pretty good incentive for him. He's like, hey, I'll teach you. We got to bring your sister along with you and some grub, okay? So <laughs> I was like, okay. So we I, that began my journey as as the world knows it. We I The dance class was completely different than what kids know dance class to be today. We, and as dancers were, even in Chicago, we're learning, I'm learning how to do this lock in a living room and in his bedroom. Now, I, I didn't mean that he, he didn't come on to me or anything, but, <laughs> but here I am locking in, locking in his bedroom uh, at the foot of his bed and, and in front of a dresser that had a cracked mirror on it. And it was somewhere around three feet from the foot of the bed to the dresser. So I really had to get the movement precise because I didn't have a lot of movement. I didn't have a lot of area to move, you know. So uh, this journey took about two weeks to the point where I actually learned it in two weeks. But it was very intense. I would do it all day long, every day. And then that began this relationship with, with Campbell Locke Jr., Fluky Luke, and Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo actually was the senior owner of the apartment. Campbell Lock Jr. was his roommate. And then Fluky Luke and I would eventually flop on the apartment. And so we were all living in this one-bedroom apartment, okay? And our training regiment would be in the living room. And our lunch breaks would be uh, eating rice mixed with scrambled egg. And I remember Craig saying one day, he said, hey, you know, this is like Chinese food. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, it's, you know, rice mixed with scrambled egg and, you know, doused with some, with some soy, uh, soy sauce was the closest we were going to get to Chinese food since we didn't have any money. <laughs> so we were like, it was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it is. It's like, it is like Chinese food. So we eventually convinced ourselves that it was. In fact, it wasn't. So uh, that, that led to Soul Train. He brought me to Soul Train. And uh, I, I want to backtrack a little bit. My sister and I danced on Soul Train in Chicago prior to that. Soul Train was the beginning of, uh, of, of Soul Train, as the world knows it. It started in Chicago on a UHF channel. So it's like a really grainy black and white channel, you know. And the... A uh, whole studio was like the size of a living room. <laughs> so, so this was Don Cornelius and Clint Gent, you know, as the host of the show. So when we went to we when we went to the one in California, it was, of course it was colorful. It was a, it was a, the first uh, version of Soul Train was red, black, and yellow, and it had some some tracks on the floor that was taped on the floor, and uh, it just kind of said Soul Train in the background. And it had these wooden, you know, plywood makeshift platforms that were painted black or red or whatever. And uh, Don Cornelius used to stand on those. Uh, and it had that first theme song was And anyway, so that was my beginning. Uh, dancing on Soul Train. Learning, how, learning the ropes in California. Eating rice aroni and scrambled eggs that we were call that we were calling Chinese food. <laughs> Got to use your imagination, guys. You know when you don't have money. Yeah. So after that, um, you've formed the um, you've got the lockers with Campbell Lock and Fred Rerun Perry and Tony Bazil and um, 
you went on to have quite a bit of success with that. Oh, yeah, okay. So the, so the natural progression was that we had become quite famous on Soul Train and uh, receiving fan mail, all of that kind of stuff. And there were a number of clubs we would frequent in Los Angeles, uh, namely, and they were all on a, a boulevard called Crenshaw Boulevard or the Crenshaw Strip. Uh, was the Citadel was which Citadel wasn't on the Crenshaw Strip. It was actually in on Sunset, it was a, a, in another area. But uh, uh, Maverick Flats, uh, Summit on the Hill, uh, Total Experience, the Apartment Club, the Joker Room. All these places were either on Sun, uh, Crenshaw Boulevard uh, proper or were surrounding that area. So anyway, I met I met Tony Basil uh, and Campbell Lock for the first time, Don Campbell Lock, uh, at the Summit on the Hill. Uh, I've seen them before, but I formally met them at the, at the Summit on the Hill. And I remember meeting Don for the first time, and I just thought, when I met him, I was in such awe of him. I just thought, I, you know, I wet my pants a little. Yeah, he was a, he was a you know he was an intimidating figure, quite muscular, very powerful dancer, and then he was Don Campbell, you know. So I was like, uh, 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 squirt, squirt, uh, squirt. Anyway, uh, then I met Tony Basil, and I was like, who's this crazy white girl in this black club? That's how that was my first impression of Tony Basil. Who is this crazy white girl, and what is she doing in this black nightclub? <laughs> Uh, and I was 16, 17 years old, and uh, the only reason I was able to get in this 21-year-old over club is I had a, a, a phony ID. I jimmied my, my sister's birth certificate and, and was able to obtain a phony ID. And even the people at the door would kind of like look at the ID and would say I was 21. Now, at 16, I looked like I was 13, but they would be like, <laughs> uh... But because I was famous from Soul Train and, and, I, and I was in the right clique, they just let it fly, but they, they would they would raise some eyebrows, you know. So anyway, I meet Tony Basil, who's wearing every shade of print, or not shade, but every style of print you you could think of. It was a cross between polka dots, uh, stripes, diagonals, zebra, whatever. This woman was wearing. She looked like a test pattern for NASA, <laughs> you know. And I just thought. Okay, first she's crazy to be here, and why is she here? And why is she here wearing those outrageous clothes? So she was quite flamboyant. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm, th that's how I met them, and uh, I began to, to just gather a, a, a really huge following and became quite popular in a very short amount of time in Los Angeles uh, due to Soul Train. Anyway, Tony Basil was putting together, had been hired as a choreographer for the Roberta Flack television special with um, Roberta Flack and, uh, what's his name, uh, and Simpson, what's his name? Oh, no, sorry, not Simpson, Donnie Hathaway. So Donnie Hathaway and Roberta Flack. And she hired what will eventually become some of the lockers, but they weren't called the lockers, then they were just a collection of dancers. My sister was one of them. So she was a locker designate. Mm -hmm. um, very pretty, very talented. 
she was going to be one of the lockers. Again, I was more of a, re, uh, a kind of quiet person then. I wasn't a loud mouth I am today, but anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, I was a kind of a shy person. My sister was more of the spokes, spokesperson, more of the mouthpiece for the both of us. And so she, she got the gig. She, they did very well on the show. And Tony had the idea that we should, we should form a group, that, that Don should form a group, a formal group. And she, eventually, we approached, she approached uh, Don, uh, Don Cornelius, and he kind of like, no, 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 no. Anyway, we, we, we also demanded that we get paid for the show. And because we, we demanded that, he, he kicked us off the show. So, yeah. <laughs> so there, there goes that. So Tony, Tony Basil instigated putting together the lockers. She was our manager and actually formed the group. Now, Don Campbell was a sort of symbolic leader, but he wasn't the one who was actually doing the day-to-day uh, managing and creating the ideas for the group that was done by Tony Basil, and Tony taught us how to count music, how to choreograph our act, how to put it into an act that made sense. Now she didn't teach us how to dance, she didn't teach us how to dress, she didn't give us any of those flavors, but she did give us a professional polish and gave us a professional direction. She was responsible for giving, getting us our first agent. We were signed with ICM, International Creative Management, um, and doing all of those things that, that made it possible for us to become the super group that we became, mm-hmm. we went on to become. And so, um, and, and, you know, I just want to get the names right, because you threw some names out there, Tom, and I just want to get them right. The, the seven-member group that was always the group the group of fame, the group that the world knows, is Tony Basil, Don Campbellock Campbell, uh, Greg Dave Gregory Pope, aka Campbellock Jr., Fred Berry, also known as Mr. Penguin, went on to be known as Rerun from the television show, Bill the Bill uh, Slim the Robot Williams. Uh, Leo Fluky Luke Williamson the third uh, or second maybe you know, it was one of those numbers and and I'm Adolfo Shabadu Quinones and, uh, and and if anybody has any problems with knowing the pro- the correct lineage knowing who were in the lockers who has a right to use these names they need to go to www.thelockersdance.com and it will clear up all the lies that are out there, all the mistruths that are out there. Oh, so I just wow. want to say that. Yeah, we'll put a link to that on the on this week's podcast notes too. Yes, please do. And well, you're on about the names there as well. I don't think we've touched yet. How did you come to be known as Shabadoo? Okay, I my first name was. Oh Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> my first my first name was Sir Lancelot. Okay. <laughs> and, hey, hey, don't laugh. That, that's a serious name there. <laughs> um, and, you know, Candelock Jr., I thought, because I had, I, when I didn't wear my hair in an afro, I would part it in the center and 
wear it straight down a la Superfly. Mm -hmm. And I would wear a headband. So when I wore the headband, Camelot Jr. said, hey, you know, you, you kind of you look like King Arthur, he said. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And, and it, he, 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 he just spit out this name. He said, you know, you should, you, your name should be Sir Lancelot. I was like, <laughs> and it had this grand regal sort of sound to it. And, and, and the whole sort of, you know, Knights of the Round Table sort of thing, <laughs> this fantasy. And I was like, yes, I'm Sir Lancelot. You know, I'm, a, I'm the, one of the Knights of the Locking Round Table and this whole kind of thing. So it literally this joke or whatever it was stuck and I became Sir Lancelot for a while. Mm -hmm. And one night and at the um, Summit on the Hill, uh, clubs in those days, they had bands. So we would dance to a band playing. And then the DJ would play uh, when, the, when the band would take a break. So it, was, it, it wasn't like today where the DJ is the thing. He was just like the fallback person. Um, so there was a group playing that's night uh, called Bloodstone. And at the tail end of one of their sets, they started saying, shabba dabba doo bop shabba dabba doo shabba dabba doo bop shabba dabba doo So on the way home uh, with Greg in his Volkswagen, this kind of green Volkswagen, I, I said I says to him, I said, hey, you know what? I, I want to change my name. He says, he looks at me and says, well, why? okay. I said, I said, you know, I, he said, well, what, what do you want to call yourself? I said, I, I want to call myself Shabba Dabba Doobop. And he looks at me and he says, well, that's really long. You know, and he, I said, he says long. And so he said, he said, why don't you just call yourself Shabdu? So, and so Shabdu, and, it was, and it was, in the beginning it was spelled S-H-A-B-A-D-O-O -O as one name, Shabba Doo. Uh -huh. Eventually was refined and is now known and spelled S H A B B A hyphen capital D O O. So he was just your name Shabdu. So I became known as Shabadu, and uh, it was it, you know again having Greg being an important part of my life. I just thought you know him being involved with with the formation of my both my names. I just really took a, a great pride in that. Camelot Jr., just so you know, just a, was a spiritual presence. Not that he was into God necessarily or any of that stuff, but just his, his overall energy and vibe and all of that. He was, so he was a spiritual person in terms of the movement in the, in the early 70s um, and on Soul Train. So I, I, everybody knew me as as Camelot Jr.'s protege, you know. That's just another name for his flunky. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a flute name for flunky, you know, which meant, hey, Shabadoo, grab my coat. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> grab the coat, you know. Or I do, you know, kind of deal with whatever Greg said because, he, you know, he's like a big brother to me and my mentor and that kind of stuff. So uh, I take great, and I tell young people, I take great pride in that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, there is a which is missing a lot in today's world. You know, they don't understand hierarchy. They don't have respect for it. And 
you know, when Camelot Jr. wanted a glass of water, I, I got him a glass of water. Mm-hmm. I was very, I was very proud of that, and uh, I loved him like that. I mean, of course, things change over the over the years. I, I came into my own, but that that changed. But I always had a level of respect for Greg, and um, and even if he said some things that I didn't agree with, and, and I and I would tell him that I didn't agree with it, I still did it in a respectful way. Yeah. yeah call him any names or anything like that. So uh, it's important young people understand that. Respect is, is key. They, they cry out for respect. You hear that a lot. I want respect. Give me respect. I need respect. Give me respect me. <laughs> but yet, yet they don't respect anyone, <laughs> which is, is uh, crazy. Yeah, they, well, you know, these young people, I grew up in an age where when you saw an elderly person, you said hello to them. You said good morning to them. And you, and you refer to them as sir and ma'am. Uh, nowadays, you know, uh, young guys come, come talk to me. They, hey, dude. I say, hey, I'm not your dude, you know, really. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a father and a grandfather. Um, and you should, you should recognize that. Now, I'm in great shape. I look good or whatever. But let's not lose sight of those basic sort of respects we have for each other. Uh, and they just, you just don't have that today. Kids don't don't they'll get they'll be right they're riding on a bus i've been i, I live in partly in, in the uk and in, in london and um so I've, I've certainly rode my share of the double decker bus <laughs> i'm very familiar with it was this uh the oxford line oh yeah, anyway, yeah so <laughs> i that bus but you know you see young people sitting in those seats and they won't even offer it to an elderly person That's you know nice. Yeah. Well, and that's disrespectful, and it's shameful. But yet, that same person will get off the bus and say, and and be and and and, and be angry with someone else that they deem is disrespectful to them. There you go. <laughs> in any case, that's how that's how I came with the name Shabadoo. Aha! Uh-huh. Now we know. Yeah. And you had, of course, you had great success with the Lockers, but um, it had to end. Um, was it 1976? That the lockers eventually split up. It was it was 1977, I believe. 77. I think I think the last show we did was the uh, Dick Van Dyke show. Hmm. Uh, when 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 uh, uh, let's say uh, Fred uh, Fairberry, Mr. Penguin, aka Rerun, left the lockers to focus primarily on the What's Happening television show, and Tony Basil eventually left the group to to pursue a solo singing career with Mickey coming out with Mickey and time after time. And, and I was also working with, just so you know, I was working with Tony Basil and the lockers at one point. Uh, there's a number of shows. Uh, she took me to London and I, we performed on Thames television, B- BBC. Uh, I performed with her doing Mickey and all, all those hits she had. So um, by the time they left, I took over the man- managerial duties. So I, I was kind of the de facto manager and, and leader of the lockers once she left. And when I say leader, I mean I was uh, controlling and leading the, the, uh, the troop uh, direction-wise, creatively. Uh, Don Campbell was in, then, and even then, was still the symbolic leader of the group, but I was actually doing all the work. So. The group uh, 
approached Don and wanted Don wanted me to be the official leader by documentation and all that. And he, of course, blew a casket. <laughs> that led to the to eventual breakup. Uh, once he, he, it was it was a bitter breakup. I must say it wasn't pleasant. And I re- and I said to him that I I would go on. He says, "Go form your own blankety blank group, <laughs> Shabadoo, and uh, call him the Shabadoo." And I said, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Why don't I just do that? So I give him some credit because uh, if he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have the the solo career that I went on to enjoy. So uh, the Kerbinet, uh not the Kerbinet, the Dick Van Dyke show we were rehearsing for in my garage. In my garage, um, we um, did the show. I put together that show. I put together the choreography. I came up with a concept called the Lockers Roll Call. So if you ever watched that show, where each of us step up to the mic and we see our names, we say, you know, I'm Campbell Lock Jr. and I'm locking. I'm Fluky Luke and I'm locking. I'm Shabadoo and I'm locking. I came up with that idea watching the Mickey Mouse Club. Oh wow! And, and they had the uh, they had a they had a part of the show where Annette Funicello and some others would, would at the end of the show. Uh, would say, oh, I'm Annette Funicello, and I'm a Mouseketeer, and I'm so-and-so, and I'm a Mouseketeer, right? So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And they called it the, uh, the, the I think it was called the, the Mouseketeer Roll Call or something like that. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do the Locker Roll Call. So I, I, I put that in there, and the song we're dancing to, I actually went with, with a co-producer, and we produced in co-published the song they were dancing to and the song we're dancing to we did the instrumental version of on the show but the show the song was called the shabadoo <laughs> so you know as a bit of history there are many people don't know so yeah so we so we disbanded in 1977 and that marked the beginning of my solo career and don campbell tried uh, different times to uh Continue, but couldn't find couldn't find a formula to to work. So the, some of the lockers went on to work with me, as in my solo shows, mm-hmm. like Fluky Luke did at some point. Don, uh, Fluky Luke, uh, Campbell Lock Jr. and rerun for a short period, and to, Tony Gogol for a short period. They became Jehovah's Witnesses. Wow. And ministers as as ministers in Jehovah's Witness organization. So they so that began a ten year drop off for them. I continued moving forward. So later in my in my shows, I I hired uh, had I went to Broadway, was discovered on Broadway, opening with uh, opening for uh, Bette Midler and her Divine Madness show. So that show led to my own television series on NBC called The Big Show, and that led to a great relationship with. Uh, uh, the great David Winters from star stage, television, films, and one of the alumni of West Side Story, amongst other credits. So he and I collaborated on some great uh, production numbers that really solidified me as a, as a solo dance star. And that, and during, in those shows, I went on to use the uh, now known as the Electro Boogaloo uh, the the lockers uh, some of the lockers uh, Fluky Luke um, 
and also Tony Gogo uh, used uh, from the Electric Boogaloo, Poppin' Pete, Creepin' Sid, Robot Dane, and uh, Puppet Boozer. So those guys became part of my, my, my shows in the early days, in the late 70s, leading up to the 80s. So the, and also, just as a footnote, historic footnote, uh, the Electric Boogaloo, I first encountered them in, uh, they came into one of my rehearsals at, uh, the, of a show that was being produced by Jeff Kutosh. And the show was called Dance Class, and I was starring in that show. And, they came, and during our rehearsals at the Coronet Theater on La Cienega Boulevard, the a group was introduced to me as big fans of mine, and, and they were called the Electronic Boogaloo Lockers. That, that group was eventually uh, fine-tuned and honed by our show, in, our, in my show, and were eventually renamed and rebranded the Electric Boogaloo. Then... Uh, so quite naturally, when I went on to do other television appearances, including my television series, I used those, those kids. And I eventually introduced those kids to Tony Basil. Mm -hmm. So, of course, so, your so solo career um, led, led up to 1984 with Breaking and Breaking 2. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was one step before Breaking and Breaking 2. Um, th that was... A project I, I, I put together, it was my brainchild, I presented it to Topper Karu at Rainbow Productions. It was called Breaking and Entering, a documentary about the West Coast street dance movement. And I served as talent coordinator and choreographer of that particular documentary. And I used all the people that you see in the Breaking movies were in that, were in that particular uh, documentary, including uh, Boogaloo Shrimp, uh, Pop and Taco, who played my nemesis in the film, and uh, you know, so uh, just you know, Lollipop, who was my, who started off as my dance partner, and, uh, and as a from a early age, her early age. Um, so yeah, uh, that was the beginning, and that was the kind of uh, served as a sort of template for the breaking film because. I went, I, I, when they started to do the break-in films, there was, there was a, a rash of, of breakdance-inspired films that were cropping up around Hollywood. One of them was called Body Rock, and one that we eventually went on to call Body Flop. But <laughs> um, anyway, I, I had the starring role. That was, going to be, that was being produced by New World Pictures, and they had a creative meeting, as they say. And in the creative meeting, they said that they wanted to get a guy the girls would like. <laughs> you, know, you know, that really hurt, right? Like, uh, okay, so I was like, so, okay, so girls don't like me. So they like this, this actor named Lorenzo Lamas, according to them. So they hired Lorenzo Lamas, who was not a street dancer, just an actor, but a good actor, mind you, uh, but was really a fish out of water in that film. I went across town. Uh, my agent had set up a meeting for me to meet with Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus over at Canon Films. They were doing a film called Breakin'. I went, I met with them to choreograph the movie. And when I showed up, I showed up looking like I looked in the movie. I, those clothes 
in the movie are my own clothes. That's not costume. That's not a costume. That, those are uh-huh. my walk, those were my walking around clothes. Could you imagine? That's how I actually went to the laundromat. <laughs> Could you imagine walking in? There's the Ozone doing his laundry, wearing a hat, nose earrings. Anyway, uh, but there, again, there was one slight, one other small project in between those. Uh, when I said uh, the breaking and entering documentary, there was also the the who um, uh, the all night long video for uh, Lionel Richie that I choreographed and I used all the dancers that again were in the breaking films were in that that particular video music video. So that look, including the earring that I had, I got the earring. Uh, while I was on tour with Lionel Richie, I made the earring uh, from an ivory tooth and a little tusk, a mini tusk, and uh, some other jewelry, and attached it to a, a ear cuff. And the and the tiger claw I got in in an airport um, while on tour. So that look, I'm sitting in the in the office at Canon Films as Ozone, just being called Shabadoo. And uh, talking about choreographing the movie, and Menachem gets the idea. He says, hey, he looks at me, he says, hey, um, uh, can you act? And I said, I don't know why I said it. I said, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> and he says, okay, uh, Shabadoo from Chicago. Why don't you go over to these casting people, Basker and Champion, Fern, uh, I think it was Pamela Basker and Fern Champion were the, were the casting directors. They're pretty big casting directors now, doing big, doing big budgeted films. Anyway, I um, I went over there and auditioned. They had been trying to find an Ozone character, and I came dressed as is, and uh, didn't really quite know the, uh, the the process. But when they said, you know, it was a little awkward moments, but then they said, okay, you can start. And one of the first lines that they had me say was. Uh, from the films, they just said, you know, who's next? And I just blurted out, Ozone, street dancer, like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, they, they, they kind of looked at me and they just, and they get kind of quiet in the room and they said, well, you know, okay, well, thank you. And, I, you know, I got in my car, I just thought, okay, well, you know, the, the character's 18. At this point, I'm like 28, 29 years old, you know. I say, you know, I'm not a kid, whatever, you know. So, and I, I just really want to choreograph the movie. And I get a few blocks away and I get a call from an agent. They said they want to they want to uh, cast you as Ozone and, and break him. And they want to see you again with another kid that you worked with named Boogaloo Shrimp. And Boogaloo Shrimp and I had already been touring together and doing stuff from the Lionel Richie, and he was part of my crew already. He was part of the Shabadoo crew. So we had built up this sort of rapport with, with each other. We were kind of like uh, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis. Everybody <laughs> used to be that kind of joking. I played the straight guy, and he, he'd do all the jokes. Oh! Uh. <laughs> or, uh, we kind of walked into the room with that personality ready-made, you know, and we just... At one point, he jumped in my arms even, and I was <laughs> carrying him around the room and doing. And they're, yeah, they're funny, you know. It can be they're funny, and they can really dance, and and they're real street dancers, and they realized at that point the magic in the room, and and both Shrimp and I were casted as Ozone and Turbo 
and breaking. And 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 then I went ahead with my influence, and I got Taco the Roll, and I got um, Pop and Pete in the movie, and uh, and Anna Sanchez as uh, as part of uh, Electro Rock. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Is one of the films. I just got to tell you this. One of the moments. Now we're all part of my crew, and it's it, no, no. Pop, Pop and Pete wasn't part of my crew, but it was sort of family because we had been working together and with the the show I told you about in Lake Tahoe, and being one of the Electric Boogaloo and all that stuff. So he had been on a number of shows with me already. So he was family, but he wasn't uh, part of my crew, but. So we're in, the, we're in the scene, doing the scene, uh, battle scene in, uh, on Venice Beach. And there's Papa Taco, who's just absolutely an amazing dancer and incredible, an incredible human being. He's doing his thing, and he's just, he just, he just wailing into me, right? He's going to teach me a lesson, right? So, you know, but it, it, as a character, not as Papa Taco, but as, you know, electrical rock, right? So, when they say cut, Papa Taco says to me, he goes, hey, Shabadu, I'm sorry, man. And I said, what? He goes, oh, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to, you know, disrespect you or nothing. I just, you know. I said, I said Taco, it's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I understand that, you know. He, but he was just, he just loved me so much. He, did, he just wanted to make sure that, I didn't take him serious that he was really trying to kill me. But I was like, you're supposed to kill me in the movie. It's supposed, I'm supposed to... Yeah, okay, first of all, I'm supposed to barely win. That's how the script is, you know, and that's the way it, it, it is. And I understand that. And no, no harm done. No, no harm, no foul, no love lost. Anyway, that, that, that's kind of one of the tales in the breaking film. And it's that same scene that Jean-Claude Van Damme was dancing in the background wearing... Uh, skin tights uh, and dancing all through, looking quite crazy. So that was Jean Claude Van Damme's uh, film debut. Break him. Wow. <laughs> um, and you broke your wrist as well on the the set of Breaking, didn't you? Yes, I did. I, I broke it. I broke it um, in in one of the early scenes of the of the film. Oh. And I was afraid to say anything for fear that um, I could be replaced. And so I, so the red bandana that I'm wearing in the, in the scenes is a result of me trying to hold my wrist together. Wow. Yeah, a hairline fracture in my left wrist. God, that must have been so painful because, you know, the moves that you make in that movie as well, that must have been, yeah. oh, dear me. I was, I was in pain the entire film. Whoa. And it was it was a huge hit as well when it made. A, I was reading yeah. that it was made for just over a million dollars, and it made. No, actually, it was made for nine hundred thousand. Wow! Wow! And uh, it it went on to make over time like some close to sixty million dollars. Whoa, that's a huge and, hit! And the second one made about thirty thirty five million. So collectively, it's some hovering around hundred million for the two. That's and nice. both the film and the both films were made for the same price tag. And it were made within the same amount of time. Like we finished one film, literally wrapped it. It was it was released, and we were right into production for the second one within a few short weeks. Whoa! Wow. So was the was the second one 
always planned, or was it the first one became this hit, and they thought, right, we'll we'll make a second one straight away? Uh, they, they they it became a hit, and they knew that after the first week, they knew it after the first week, and after the opening, when when we had lines wrapped around um, uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater, mm-hmm. and they knew they knew the returns. The, the box office was was couldn't be denied. We were killing every film that was out there, so they they, they were like, "Oh my God, we have a runaway hit on our hands here." Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have you know what they call it uh, a sleeper, a sleeper mm-hmm. hit. So they they so they immediately ordered a new production. I knew when I was in film uh, in Cannes Film Festival, uh, we were we were uh, debuting and promoting the film at Cannes, and um, we knew then that because we were approached that my agents told me that we were. Uh, they wanted us to make another picture, so I knew right then. So I went, I went ahead and signed a two-picture deal after that. I had, so I had a three-picture deal with Canon. You know, I started in After Break-In, too. I actually started in uh, Lombada as well. Oh yeah, I was just going to move yeah. on. I was just going to ask you then about like your acting career after that, because your profile just went through the roof with the Break-In movies. Yes, yes, it did. So. Um, the, 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 there was a slight delay between the Breaking 2 and L- the Lombada film. So in between that, I uh, went on tour with Madonna and choreographed her world tour. So I started doing stuff like that, uh, choreographing tours and that kind of stuff. And what was that like? I mean, because she was huge at the time too, wasn't she? Yeah, she was promoting and releasing the film. Yeah, she was huge, mega. Uh, she was releasing the film, Who's That Girl? So it was the Who's That Girl World Tour I had, and I had the following tour. Uh, I had actually turned down the following tour to star in Lombardo. Wow. She didn't like that. She didn't like that very much. <laughs> Madonna, has, Madonna has a way of when she works with you, she feels like she owns you, you know. Oh, uh, right. But, but, but uh, she, she wasn't aware slavery was well over. But she has, she has a lot of slaves working for her now. <laughs> You know, you know all those all those people that work with Madonna, they do what Madonna tells them to do. <laughs> they don't have an independent mind you know, with her. I I did. I was the only dancer and to date on that of a show that size and with Madonna that actually demanded and got solo billing in her show. Wow! Wow! So it would be Shabadoo in the Who's That Girl or two. If it said Who's That Girl, it says starring Shabadoo. Nice, very nice. And I was paid beyond what everybody else was paid and choreographed the film. So, I mean, the, the royalties, uh, what, what have you. So, That's good. You know, so, yeah. And for people that don't know, I mean, I've been reading over the last week or so, the people that you have choreographed is like who's who. You know, if you just please tell the listeners some of the people that you've worked with. Well, that I've worked with, I mean, it, it ranges from a pretty eclectic mix. Uh, I worked with uh, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Roger Miller, Don Rickles, Mike Douglas. Uh, I worked with Michael Jackson. I worked with Madonna, Lionel Richie. Shaka Khan, Norma Kamali. It goes on. It can go on from there, but yeah. 
and out of out of yeah. those, who was the easiest? Well, when I say easiest to work with, who who picked up the moves easier? Oh, dancing wise? Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, you know, out of the bunch, I mean, I I, I certainly I can't, when I work with Michael, I work with Mark Michael as a guest star, so I didn't choreograph Michael. So let's make that clear. But I did work with him as a guest star in his ghost video. Mm-hmm. Now, so I can't speak to how easy it is to work with, but I'm assuming based on what I <laughs> saw that Michael was the better dancer of the whole lot. <laughs> but having worked hands-on with Madonna, um, she, I would say they all presented themselves as a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, there was... Madonna has a great way of being Madonna, but in my opinion, she's not a dancer. Mm-hmm. Not by any stretch of the imagination. She, 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 not, not like a Michael. Yeah. Not even, not even close. And of course, she was. But she's great. At, she's great at being Madonna, you know. So that, that's cool, you know. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, Michael is quite a special being. Oh yeah, definitely. And you mentioned Lombardo as well. Um, I mean, that was like a huge movie too. Oh yeah. It, well, you know, it. No, Lombardo wasn't the a huge box office. It was everybody yeah. anticipated that it would be. It was more after the effect, I think, wasn't it? It was after the point. It, yeah. it, it went on to do well, but it, but initially it didn't. It didn't do well. It didn't resonate with an audience. Uh, upon its release, but uh, it was certainly a fun project to work on, and I, I got to work with some really talented dancers in it, um, in it and on it. So it was it was it was it was a great experience overall. And then going to rave, dancing to a different beat. Um, I've got to ask you about this because because you you secured the funding for it, you co-wrote it, you choreographed yeah. it. And, yes. you, and you directed it as well. Yes, I did. Uh, you were going to say? I was just going to say, how on earth did you fit all of that in? <laughs> was... oh, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, that was a pretty interesting journey. As my as as you're starting to maybe find out, all these things are are kind of interesting. Now, I originally was approached by a production company called Smart Egg Pictures run by Luigi Singolani. And he had a film that he was doing called Rice, Beans, and Ketchup. And he wanted me to choreograph the movie. Now, I read the script, and I thought, oh, God, I can't do this thing. You know, it was not, not something that, that I thought would be help, helpful. But, but I was aware of the rave scene. So I go in, and I tell him, I say, hey, you know, this movie's not really good. I don't want to... That's why I really don't want to choreograph the movie. And then he said, why not? I said, well, the movie's not really that good. <laughs> and, and he said, well, he said, well, what, what would you do? And I said, well, I said, are you familiar with the rave, underground rave scene? The kids doing ecstasy and running around, what have you. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. And then I, and so I, I told him, I said, well, you know, they're doing ecstasy and acting crazy and this and that. And he said, I could... If you could write that, an idea, and bring it to my office by Monday, and this was like a, a Friday, a Thursday or Friday, 
And um, I, I think I could get that financed. So I was like, okay. I said, okay, but I didn't know how to write a script. Hmm. I didn't know how to write. So I went and got Sid Field's writing handbook. <laughs> and I taught myself, I read the book from cover to cover. And gleaned as much information as I possibly could about the screenwriting process. And I was able to get, I was able to cobble together some sort of treatment and which I pitched him and brought him in, brought it in on Monday. And he, he read it and he said, well, you know, it's a good idea here, you know, and you know, he recognized it wasn't the best, but he said, Hey, it was, it was good enough to move forward and he could get it sold. So he he eventually got it sold for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and and I I said, well, I have to direct and choreograph the movie. He said, okay, and we brought in da uh, Daniel Ference, who went on to write for the Halloween movies. So this was his first screenplay. Ah, so Daniel Ference wrote the screenplay based on my original story. And, uh, of course, I had, I had a lot of hands-on with the writing process with Daniel, so I learned a lot working with Daniel, who was a fledgling writer himself, so we were both trying to figure this thing out, really. And, and produced a film. I came in under budget, and uh, I used a lot of the dancers, that, some, some dancers that were in Michael's tour. Like, the, the, I, I had uh, Garcia, who was uh, in Breaking, as well, and went on to dance with Michael Jackson on his tours. I had him star in the film, and uh, I put together a, a pretty nice little cast with some great unknowns, but good dancing uh, principles, and uh, that, that marked my directorial debut. It was a frightening experience, I gotta tell you, directing a film. It, you know, on paper, it sounds wonderful, but it scared the bejesus out of me, <laughs> you know, because you realize uh, um, you realize very quickly how how much is really needed, how much is really called on to be a director for a film, and I really didn't have the skills to direct, and and I, you know, I just had some really great people support me and in the film, you know, my DP and and another. Some other gentlemen on on the production were able to help guide me through it, through the process, and and, and come up with a picture, you know. So, but it was it was frightening, you know. When I I remember the first day in my office, I gotta tell you, I closed the door and I sat in the chair and wept because <laughs> <laughs> I was I was afraid of it. I was like, this is scary, you know. Yeah. Mm. And all these people, you know, people are putting up, you know, $750,000 is a lot of money. Oh, yeah. So, and, uh, you know, and I was going to be respons help responsible for it. So would you uh, jump behind the director's chair again? Would you do it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Post that post the film, I did realize where I was lacking, where, you know, and I applied to AFI. The American Film Institute is a prestigious postgraduate university. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the prerequisites to applying was you needed um, any applicants, considered applicants, would need to have had, have a an undergrad degree, which I didn't have. So, 
I submitted the one and a half spaced five page narrative uh, about my life and why I wanted to make films and my reel as a dancer and $75 or whatever it was to apply. And I did that and just thinking, hey, I'm just going to throw a hail, a hail Mary here. And uh, they called me. <laughs> to my surprise, they called me. I thought, you know, because a lot of time went by and I just thought, okay, well, they're not going to pick me, whatever, you know, okay. I just accepted that and, and, and contemplating my next move. And I get a call from Dejo Magyar and I went in and met with AFI and they wanted to know why I wanted to come there and reminded me of the, the prerequisite the undergrad prerequisite that was needed to attend uh, AFI. Uh, and um, I just told them why I wanted to make movies and just gave them, them an impassioned plea. And they, said, they, they stopped me at one point and said, listen, we know we're aware of your career as a dancer and we know that you had made a film already and all of that. Like, because by then I had already had the $750,000 film. So they, they saw that I, I could direct a movie. They, they saw that I made one. Yeah. So I, and they said, well, they asked me about the experience of that movie. And I just said, it wasn't my best effort that I felt it wasn't the movie that I really wanted to make and that I was capable of making. And I said, why? I said, because I didn't know how to make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew how to be, I knew how to be in a movie, but I didn't know how to make a movie. And, you know, they laughed and they said, well, you know, so, okay, Shabadu, we're going to do something unprecedented here. We're going to allow you to, to come to AFI and, um, and we're going to take your credit as a, as equal to the prerequisite. So that that's been satisfied. And, uh, you're going to, we're, we're doing it not because we think so much that we're helping you, but we think that your experience will help other young people to know what it takes to hustle and really get a movie made. And we just think it would be a great mix. So I joined AFI. I was in my forties then and all my fellow students, cause they only, they only select 25 people in each discipline. So it's a very exclusive school. Yeah. Uh, 25 is a director, 25 is as a writer, 25 is a producer, 25 is a, as a DP. And, and, and producers, producer, director, DP, writer, and oh, and the editor. So there's five disciplines and 25 in each. So that amounts to 125 total on, that's on the, on the campus. So there, but these kids were like half my age. <laughs> so I was like, you know, mixing in with these, you know, I still look pretty young. I always look younger than my age, I, you know, breaking. I'm 29 years old, 30 years old, playing an 18-year-old. Uh, and now I'm on, uh, on the AFI campus as a 40-year-old mixing in with 20-some-year-olds. <laughs> and, and, and everybody thought I was around their age, even though they didn't do the math. They all knew me from the movies as well. But I lost sight while I was on, on the campus. I just thought, you know, I don't know what I thought, but I, I got caught up in being Shabadu and partying and... <laughs> Losing sight of why I was supposed to be there. <laughs> and so my first film project at AFI really sucked. It was terrible. And they just, and the, the process of AFI is, is this. You, you can't really defend your projects. 
you know, and they just laid into me. And I just remember going outside of the Samuel Goldwyn Theater, sitting in my car and just I, I, crying again. Mm. Um, I, I call out, I call my mom, you know, I'm blowing snot bubbles out of my nose. And <laughs> I, I'm crying to the point where I'm hiccuping. So you know, you know, you didn't mama, mama. <laughs> Okay, this is me, Mama. Anyway, um, so she gets on the phone and she says, uh, "What's wrong? What's wrong, baby?" I said, "You know, I, I made a fire. I said my film sucks, and I, you know, I want to quit." She said, "No, you don't. See, you dry your eyes, you get right back in there, and you be the son that I know I raised. You just, you just get better." And I don't know. I just took this whole kind of like taxi driver approach to my. <laughs> My next project, I shaved all my hair off. I mean, I had a bald head like, 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 like De Niro. And I just lived in the library and studied films and studied how they made films. And, you know, like Michelangelo and Tonioni and, and, and you know, Beyond the Clouds and understanding, you know, di the different genres of films and how they work mm -hmm. and focusing on the screenwriting process as a director. So, which I didn't do before. And my second picture was really well received. Um, everybody was like, wow, you know, you really made a difference. And then by the time I graduated, I had one of the best pieces on the campus. So I just stayed with it. And, uh, and now, I, you know, through that process, I think from failing initially and then, and then picking myself back up has given me a keen awareness of the filmmaking process. So now as a writer now and as a director now, I'm very confident about what I want to do on the set, how to run my set, because that's really what you are as a director, you're a supervisor. Yeah. Uh, and how to be a supervisor and how to supervise uh, and motivate your, your, your employees and, and fellow workers and, um, um, and understanding the screenwriting process has given me, again, that deeper awareness of the filmmaking process. So uh, now I walk on the set, I don't have the, the nervousness that I can't do it. I have the, I have the nervous excite, excitement that one has riding a, a roller coaster who believes at the end you will step off that roller coaster and you won't die. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, if you, do, if, you, if you don't think you're going to get off the roller coaster, that first dip you think, oh my God, the world is it. You know, so, so yes, uh, now I'm, I'm skilled, I'm skilled, I'm confident, I know what I'm doing, and, um, and I know enough to know that doing what I do and knowing what I know as a director that is partially responsible and mutually responsible to all the other disciplines that, that are required to make a film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Now listen, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know like, you're a busy guy and you've been really generous to us, but one, one thing I've got to fetch up is uh, both myself and Tom, we collect uh, PM Entertainment movies and we couldn't help but notice that you were in Steel Frontier. Yeah! Now, I watched, I watched Steel Frontier this afternoon and I loved it and I thought you'd got a great part in it. I thought you were really, really good in it. Oh, thank you, thank you. You know what, why don't you send me a copy of that? I'd like to see that. Yeah, of course uh, I will. Yeah, yeah, if you could pop one in the mail, it would be awesome. Any, a DVD or something. But in any case, um, yeah, that, that was, 
give you an idea of what I could do if I just as an actor if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I could I could transform. But yeah, they were quite surprised as well. I came in with that character, that kind of nutty character playing yeah. playing poker, playing <laughs> poker, right? That's right. Yeah, with the nasty teeth and the in this uh, a post-apocalyptic world. You know? <laughs> That's right. Right, yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah. I would love if you'd seen that. That was a lot of fun doing that picture. Uh, it was hard to do because it was low, ultra low budget, as as the PM Entertainment films were were in those days. Mm-hmm. And a lot, you know, it's kind of the, the Roger Corman school of filmmaking. Uh, I tried to do it for 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 nothing, actually. But um, yeah, yeah, great experience doing that. PM Entertainment, Steel Frontier. Oh, right. what, was my, what was my character's name? I had a character name. I oh, um, Deacon. Deacon, right. I was Deacon, yeah. right? I'm yeah. Deacon. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Deacon. Oh, uh, uh, I'll do a lot of that kind of stuff, right? That's right, yeah. And a, and a bottle oh, of whiskey. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm Deacon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, that was fun. Oh, you yeah. know, but I, I would like to just kind of put it out there, let you know that I am working on an on, on another breaking picture, I've written the screenplay. Uh-huh. Uh huh. My producers, uh, one of my producers is from the UK. His uh, his name is Liam O'Neill. He he resides in Ireland. And my other producer is Candace Lake. I'm also a producer on the project, hmm. and uh, it's going to be a great motion picture. I think uh, a different than what most people would expect from me making another breaking picture. Yeah. It's got a new it's got a new energy and a new direction. It's a new breaking film for a new generation. And you could liken it to be a, basically not a break in three, but more of a break in reboot. Ah, okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm very excited about that. And the name of the picture is Breaking Uprising. Oh, you're going to oh. have to keep us updated on this. Breaking Uprising. Yeah, we'll be back as we get closer. Uh, Right now, we just, we've, yeah, again, I finished the screenplay and that kind of stuff, and we're just tidying up some stuff. And we're looking, we're earmarking to go into production or principal photography uh, summer of 2014 in Chicago and Ireland. Oh, that sounds oh. good. Yeah, yeah it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Uh, it got, got a lot of surprises in it. Uh, and uh, we will satisfy our, I will satisfy my fans and the fans of the previous break-in films. Now, uh, again, it's a break-in reboot with a new idea, with a new direction, with the heart and soul of the first film, of my first films. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll keep a close eye on that. Yeah, please do. Um, please, my fans, join me on, on Facebook. Uh, join me on Twitter. I'm at Shabadu underscore Shaba underscore do on Twitter. And please go to my website, www.shabadu.com. And for all my workshop and seminar updates, go to www.shabadu.com forward slash blog. Now, Shabadu is spelled S-H-A-B-B-A hyphen D-O-O. So www.shaba hyphen do Okay. Yeah, and we'll put yeah. all those links up on our podcast notes okay. too. Yeah, and and hopefully if everything goes right, we'll we'll do many many more interviews in the in the future. And if it doesn't, you'll see me standing by a freeway with a sign saying, "We'll <laughs> damn." <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, we'd like, love to have you back on because we've got so much still. I mean, you've got, had such a great career. We could just talk for hours to you. Oh, I'd love to. Whenever you guys are ready, I, it was, it's been a blast. Oh. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Shabba. It's, it's been so good chatting to you. My pleasure, man. You guys have a blessed, blessed day, and, and I'm looking forward to the, uh, the podcast. Please keep us updated with all your projects, you know, and we'll happily promote everything. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. All right, thank you again. Ciao.